Blog Talk Radio. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Log Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. Tonight's show will focus on the New Orleans Tribune, an introduction to America's first black daily newspaper with Mark Charles Rudinay. Mark Charles Rudinay was born in New Orleans and currently resides in St. Paul, Minnesota. An educator, author, and public speaker, Mr. Rudinay's recent release, The New Orleans Tribune, an introduction to America's first black daily newspaper, has sold over 800 copies. His articles have appeared in numerous journals, including the Atlantic Magazine, South Atlantic Review, and the Journal of the Louisiana Creole Research Association. Mr. Rudinay was featured as the keynote speaker at the 150th anniversary of the Tribune at Dillard University and recently presented lectures on Tribune history at Savannah State University. The Louisiana Public History Forum at Southern University of New Orleans and the Louisiana Creole Research Association. So let me give a very warm welcome to Mark Charles Rudinay, to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Mark. 
Thanks for having me, Bernice. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's a pleasure having you. So just to to get this show kicked off, why don't you tell us about a little bit more about yourself and then what motivated you to to do your research on the Tribune? I'd be happy to, Bernice. Um, I'd like to start with just uh, sharing with the listeners what initially triggered my interest in the New Orleans Tribune. I'd always been very curious about my late father's ancestry, but my dad just refused to talk about his father. He was angry that this man had abandoned him to be raised by a single mom in the seventh ward of New Orleans. But everything changed after my father died uh, about 11 years ago, 2005. While throwing away most of his papers, I happened upon a very oddly unlabeled binder. And when I opened it, the first thing I saw was an image of Dr. Louis Charles Rudinet and information on his 19th century newspaper, the New Orleans Tribune. And I thought to myself, I remember Louis Charles Rudinet. That was my father's name. And the picture of the publisher of America's first black daily newspaper resembled my dad. So for a stunning instant, my heritage had reappeared from a historical fog. I was very confused and proud at the same time, and of course, I was just tremendously excited. So I began flipping through the pages of this binder, and I was dumbfounded to discover a hidden past. Inside were old photographs, uh, birth, marriage, death certificates, historical records, and all kinds of other genealogical traces. The records showed that my ancestors were Creoles of color from Louisiana. And growing up white in New Orleans, I had no idea of my Creole ancestry. But I remember thinking, being most amazed at the fact that I was the great-great-grandson of Dr. Louis Charles Rudinet, who was a luminary, a leader in America's first civil rights movement and the publisher of America's first black daily. So I was confronted with uh, an undefinable realization. Uh, I was no longer who I thought I was. I know that I received a great gift. I knew then and there that I was going to use it wisely to honor a tremendous legacy. And that's why I'm here with you tonight, to help shine some light on the most important part of this legacy. And that's the story, the inspirational story, of America's first black daily, the New Orleans Tribune. Well, I have to tell you, you're getting a reaction from the chatters. Okay. Angela is saying, imagine such a fine. James is saying, nice fine. Selma, what fine? Who found? Oh, wow. So he had no idea. Amazing. 
So this is certainly an amazing, amazing. Okay, okay. so you found this in your home with all of this information so that your your father or your great-grandfather, somebody was keeping the documents. Correct. Uh, there were, in, in my father's possession, uh, undoubtedly passed down from his, his mother, probably held these things, were all these court documents, photographs, and, and various birth, death, and marriage certificates, which clearly documented my ancestry. Uh, so that was the amazing thing. I, what, I, what I discovered in digging deeper into the genealogy is that, um, in fact, my third great-great-great-grandparents uh, on my father's side had actually uh, come to Louisiana in the early part of the 1800s uh, as refugees from the slave uprising in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which of course is now known as Haiti. And uh, uh, my third great-grandfather met uh, my third great-grandmother on the plantations uh, uh, of St. James Parish, Louisiana in the early 1800s. my third great-grandmother, Amy Potenz, lived as a, a free woman of color, and they together would go on to have several children, including uh, their firstborn, John Baptiste Rudinet, who eventually became the publisher of the New Orleans Tribune. And then uh, in 1823, uh, Louis Charles Rudinet, who was, uh, of course, my great-great-grandfather and the founder of uh, the New Orleans Tribune. Uh, and then going through these records, I could see that my my great grandfather was also uh, born in New Orleans in 1864, listed as C or colored on his birth on his birth record. Uh, I saw that my grandfather, a man I'd never met, Rudolph Rudinet, was born in New Orleans in 1901, was listed as C or colored on his birth certificate, and my father. Uh, my father's birth certificate uh, showed him listed as white, so legally he was the first person uh, on my father's line to disappear, so to speak, into uh, the white race. Uh, So that, in a nutshell, uh, was the genealogy that I began uncovering as I dug deeper into the family history. Um, Most of my work since discovery, since 2006, has centered around researching, reading, and uh, contextualizing the newspaper itself. And that's because I don't have a lot of information in terms of uh, memoir or oral history or personal recollection uh, about my family. Uh, But what I do have, and that's the greatest gift of all, are the newspapers themselves. And uh, my great-great-grandfather's voice and the voice of many uh, free people of color who uh, put this newspaper together are captured in the pages of these newspapers, and they're just so powerful to read. So 
that that's what's animated me. That's what's driven me to go back time and time again to New Orleans to dig in the archives. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to eventually sharing uh, all of my research in book form, hopefully in 2018. Well, it's, it's certainly something with, the, with your find to really stimulate you to want to find out as much as you can about your, your heritage and about this, this newspaper. Now, there are several questions, and I'm going to ask you one of the questions they want to know. Do you have, do you have pictures? Yes. I have uh, some real treasures. I um, have images. Some of these pictures I have and some are actually scans that were provided to me by cousins who I've discovered. Um, my most prized picture is a daguerreotype uh, that was taken of my third great-grandmother in New Orleans in 1844. Uh, I have no idea who took that daguerreotype, but it very well may have been Jules Lyon, who was a protege, a student of Daguerre in Paris, and was operating in New Orleans at that time. So I have this wonderful image of my third great-grandmother wearing a tignon, wearing the headdress that was so common amongst free women of color in antebellum New Orleans. That is the best picture I ever could imagine having. I also have three photographs of my great-great-grandfather, uh, an early photograph from his wedding album, uh, a, a picture that was taken uh, later in the late 1860s, and another picture that was taken uh, just before his death in the late 1880s. And there are a slew of other photographs that uh, include my great-grandfather, uh, my grandfather, uh, and, uh, and, and they're just wonderful to see. I also have some uh, images of my great-great-grandmother, uh, Cile Soleil, who was also, like Louis Charles Rudinet, a free person of color in antebellum New Orleans. And uh, altogether, I would say my collection is uh, uh, about 30 photographs. Wow. That is wonderful. Now, there's a question, and, and we're going to get into more about the Tribune, but the, your family member, you said your father was the first one listed as white. Did your father remain in New Orleans, or did the whole family move away? We stayed in New Orleans uh, from 1951 to 1957, and then my family moved north, to the Chicago suburbs, and I was raised in uh, the Chicago suburbs. Um, so um, my recollection of New Orleans is is uh, is good, but it's the recollection of an older man who's thinking back uh, 60 years ago. Okay, so you really didn't have that whole New Orleans grow, uh, growing up with the whole culture of, of New Orleans. No, not at all, not at all. Now, my father, it's interesting, my father, who lived as white, lived in the heart of the Creole of Color community in New Orleans. He lived at 1852 Hope Street in the 7th Ward, 
right by St. Augustine High School. So go figure. Oh, yes, I know exactly where that is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's another question. So having grown up primarily as white, what was your perception then of people of color? Well, growing up, um, my perception of people of color was was very, very naive because I lived in an all-white world. I went to uh, all-white high school. I went to a, uh, a, a college which was 99% white. But I never um, felt any prejudice or any kind of ill will towards anyone of color ever growing up. Um, certainly, I have become much more aware post-discovery in the last 11 years of what that means for me and what racial identity means for me. But uh, overall, I would say that my perception is that um, I embrace that part of my ancestry, which is African, and I embrace that part of my ancestry, which is European. And those ancestries mm-hmm. blended together in Saint-Domingue and continue to blend in Louisiana, and that's part of who I am. So I'm proud of that. I'll I'll claim that. Okay. Well, let's move on to talking about the the Tribune. So give us some background information. Let's first begin with when was this newspaper first published? Okay. The New Orleans Tribune uh, debuted. It first came out on July 21st, 1864, Uh, so about 152 years ago. It originally came out as a tri-weekly newspaper, but in October of 1864, it became a daily. Um, And it was, um, by any definition, a radical newspaper. It agitated and organized from the very beginning for what they called revolutionary systemic change they were advocating for the total overthrow of white supremacy. And keep it in mind that they were in the heart of the Confederate beast in 1864. Uh, Now, granted, New Orleans had been occupied by Union forces, but the forces of white supremacy were alive and well in the city of New Orleans. The newspaper published for... Um, about four solid years, 1864, 65, 66, 67, and it basically ended in March of 1868. There were some subsequent issues, but it ceased being a daily in March of 1868. So it was alive and well during the Civil War period and during the Reconstruction era. It, it, um, It really concentrated on all those issues that were so important to blacks in New Orleans. Its primary focus was on achieving the right to vote. It also worked tirelessly to come up with an equitable labor and land system to replace slavery. It worked tirelessly for the integration of public transportation and public schools. This is 100 years before Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, It reported on the black military. 
They talked about all of the politics of Louisiana. And most importantly, it was widely distributed. It was distributed all over the United States. Its articles and editorials were copied in major newspapers in the North. And the newspaper also circulated amongst intellectuals in Europe. Uh, so it was a very unusual paper uh, for its time. Unlike some of the early black newspapers, which were not the elite, uh, uh, Freedom's Journal comes to mind out of New York. I think that was 1827. And, uh, of course, Frederick Douglass's North Star. This particular newspaper was international and national in scope. It wasn't just a small local publication. Uh, it wasn't based in, in uh, religion. Uh, it was um, radical and democratic, where some of these earlier black papers, which were so important in kind of bringing the conversation about self-determination to the table, uh, were, were quite different uh, than the New Orleans Tribune. So it really was a... It really was uh, a different animal, and it, 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 it became a rallying point for not only free people of color, those who lived as free before the Civil War, but also for the emancipated, for the freedmen, those who had just been released from the bondage of chattel slavery. Um, and that's one reason that it was a dangerous newspaper to the powers that be. It really did work tirelessly to unite both the old Jean de Couleur Libre, the free people of color, and the newly emancipated slave. Um, I could go on and on about the history of the paper. It's just so rich. It, it, I should mention it appeared, uh, it was a four-page newspaper. It appeared in uh, two pages in English, two pages in French, and uh, interestingly, the, the French copy is different than the English uh, and vice versa. They, they're not just translations one or the other. Um, but it was, uh, it was certainly a, a force to be reckoned with during the Civil War and the Reconstruction eras. It had a huge impact on the politics of the state, and um, I could go more and more into that as the conversation continues, Bernice. Right. Well, as as you're talking about this this radical newspaper, I want you to to give us an idea of of some of the the words that were shared in this newspaper to to help us understand just how radical was this newspaper. Well, I I have a lot of the extracts on my dining room table, and I, I'm going to share. Uh, one in particular uh, now that uh, it centers on the, the, the primary goal of the newspaper, which was to achieve the black vote. And I should just mention in context that the Tribune agitated and organized for that vote. They actually organized uh, simulated elections in 1865 to demonstrate the fervor with which black men would go to the polls. Um, they supported uh, a convention of black men at the Mechanics Institute in 1866 who were trying to get a voting platform in the new state constitution. I could go into the Mechanics Institute more later. 
1867, they organized and helped achieve the first legal elections for black men ever in the state of Louisiana. So what I want to do, given that, given that context, is just read an extract from the um, 1860, I'm sorry, October 29, 1867 edition of the Tribune, commenting on uh, a recent election, the first time that black men were able to vote. Over 82,000 black men voted in the fall of 1867, and they voted for black delegates to the upcoming Constitutional Convention. Uh, And so I think this is worth listening to it. And, And again, these are the words of the newspaper. It is ridiculous to offer our men with offices that they can receive from our very vote. It must be well understood that the situation has changed. Before the grant of suffrage, when we had no power of our own, we were compelled to look upon the white class for support and protection. We were dependent upon the goodwill of that class. But men must understand how the time has changed. We now have the ballot to use on our own behalf. We have more than the ballot. We compose a majority in the state. And with the help of our radical friends, we compose a majority in the convention. We are therefore able to make the law. We have not to receive it from anybody. It is for us to promise situations to our friends, to the trusty ones. It is for us to distribute offices and favors. We will put into office those in whom we have confidence. We need need not wait that they be kind enough to place our men in. For the colored masses are the masters of the field. Everything depends on the colored vote. It is derision and shame for the, quote, white man's party, unquote, to offer us what we hold in our hands. Wow. And that was 1867. Correct. It is incredible and very powerful. You know, and the the convent, those black men elected a biracial, a bi, excuse me, a biracial Louisiana State Constitutional Convention. And that was the convention that put together the groundbreaking 1868 Louisiana State Constitution that included all of the strong civil rights provisions uh, that the Tribune had campaigned for. That's universal male suffrage, um, equal rights, citizenship, integrated public schools, uh, Confederate disenfranchisement, uh, I could go on and on, a racially proportional representation, uh, they repealed the old uh, black code laws. Um, so it really quite amazing situation. Uh, they realized that 
the black vote uh, meant black power, and they actually achieved that in 1868. You know, I'm I'm just listening to you, and I'm thinking about, you know, today. (laughs) And as I began to read your book, I mean, your introduction, I kept saying, I'm reading stuff, and it's like it's happening today. But it happened a hundred and something years ago. It, it is so. But we so know concerning. that we had people out there, strong advocates, out there really promoting the rights of the freedmen and the free people of color coming together as as one. And it's it's interesting because it's actually you know in your in your book where you're showing how we're, we once had the, the tri-groups, tri as you said. You had white, you had Correct. free people of color, and you had slaves. And then after the Civil War, what happened? What happened is they that looked the, at distinction, the distinction right, between free people of color and the enslaved was blown away. It was a binary. Right. It was either black or white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's so in, here, here, can I read another quote that goes to what you're talking about, Bernice? Absolutely. It, 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 this is from the uh, December 23rd, 1868 Tribune. We are the organ of the whole colored population. The Tribune has always defended the interests of every colored man without regard as to whether he was free before or since the war. We have taken our brothers who have just emerged from slavery by the hand and we have warmed their benumbed limbs, which are loaded with the shackles of slavery. We do not feel ashamed of them. They are us and we love them and we love them as we do ourselves. We are the organ of the oppressed without distinction of race or color. Oh, I love it. And this was written in the newspaper. Correct. That's an extract from December 23, 1868. And as you mentioned before, Bernice, it, it's the past is always present. A lot of the extracts that I can share with you and listeners are so relevant to what's going on today. Um, are you ready for a few more? Uh, <laughs> got a few. It's hard to know where to start. I and think, then, and then we'll take a quick break because I know you have there's so okay. much in this for for people to hear. Uh, there's a what? comment coming out that history is repeating itself. It certainly is. And, uh, you know, I think I think it's very important in these difficult times that we're in today, right now, to understand the lessons of history. And that that's a whole other show. But we're certainly not only looking at a newspaper which speaks as eloquently to today's issues, as it did back then. But we're also able to trace the long arc of the civil rights movement. It started in New Orleans in the 1860s all the way to what's happening today. So 
I just want to I, I just want to read an extract uh, which has to do with something that many people are not familiar with. Most most people have um, an understanding that um, public education was segregated in this country until 1954 when Brown versus Board of Education uh, outlawed segregation in the public schools. Of course, it took some years of strong struggle by uh, lawyers and, and vigilant black parents to make Brown versus Board, Board of Education happen. But let me just read uh, an extract or two. These are short from the Tribune which have to do with um, the public schools. This first one is for, uh, excuse me, it's from the New Orleans Tribune, January 30th, 1866. We hold that the question of the schools will only be settled when all children without discrimination on account of race or color will be admitted to sit together on the same benches and receive from the same teachers the light of knowledge. At that time, there will be one set of schools in all the energies of the state. All the talent of the teachers will be directed to one end and one aim, the promotion of public education for the greatest good of all. And again, from that same uh, month, this is January 18, uh, 1867, again from the Tribune, it is said that separate schools may be made available as efficient as the white ones. This is in no way evident. The white schools are provided with ample material and with experienced teachers. As long as they will remain affected to the children of a privileged class, they will be privileged schools. And as such, they will be better cared for and better conducted than any other set of schools devoted to what is called, quote, an inferior grace, unquote. And one more, and then I'll, we'll go, but on the school issue, this is from okay. uh, uh, May 9th, 1867. The idea of having schools over which will be inscribed, quote, for children of fair complexion only, unquote, or, quote, for children with blue eyes only, unquote, and other schools set apart for, quote, children of dark complexion, unquote, and, quote, for children with dark eyes, is of itself ridiculous. The time has come to consider the propriety, justice, and simplicity of admitting all children into the public schools. The next step is to do away with the distinction of race in the public schools as it has been done away with in the city's streetcars. And I I should just mention, too, that um, the, the state constitution, which the Tribune helped uh, write, uh, legally mandated um, black children's access to public schools and did make segregation illegal. 
And very vigilant black legislators and parents overcame extraordinarily vicious white resistance uh, and established a well-managed system of 21 integrated public schools in New Orleans in the 1870s. So I think yeah, the past is always present, but this is this is uh, this is well before Ruby Bridges and Leona Tate and Gail Etienne and uh, and all the people who integrated the public schools in New Orleans. Um, the past is always present. The past is always present, and what was going on, you still had people, it, they continue to repeat this over and over and over again. You can't have it separate and call it equal. Right. It just, you just could not have this. Now, I'm I'm having people ask about, you know, can they find the Tribune online? So we're going to take a quick break and come back to talk about the the resources you use to research the Tribune, and then I want you to to come back on and read a letter from Frederick Douglass. So just a quick break, everybody. Okay. Yo, everybody, get up! Everybody, get up! Everybody needs to understand that I'm more than simply a hype man for this rap group. Just like Geico is more than just a company that can save you money. Geico also has fast and friendly claim service, so they can help you when you need it most. And while I do love being a hype man, I also love reading for children's audiobooks. Like Little Bo Peep, she lost the sheep, and she don't know where to find them. Yo! Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. The New Orleans Tribune, America's first black daily newspaper, and he's shared with us some very moving abstracts. So, Ma, just read the letter from Frederick Douglass. I'd be happy to, Bernice. 
This letter appeared in the New Orleans Tribune on October 27, 1865. And uh, just a little context before I read it, Frederick Douglass had met the publisher of the Tribune, uh, my great-great-uncle Jean-Baptiste Rudinet, on the speaking tour, uh, uh, the abolitionist speaking tour, uh, they met at, in Boston. Uh, this was after uh, Rudinet and another free man of color, uh, Arnold Burtnell, had delivered a petition to, to Abraham Lincoln demanding uh, the right uh, for black men to be able to vote. And this letter from Fred Frederick Douglass is reflecting back on, on their meeting in Boston. It starts, it's, uh, it's from Rochester, New York, October 9, 1865. Mr. Rudinay, dear sir, absence from home on a lecturing tour is my apology for not sooner sending you a line in answer to your inquiry whether I ever see the Tribune. I have to say that I not only see it sometimes, but that I see it and read it with very great pleasure. I am proud that a press so true and wise is devoted to the interests of liberty and equality in your southern latitude. The time that I predicted in your presence at that memorable dinner at the Parker House, Boston, is now upon us. While the war lasted and loyal blood flowed at the call of rebel steel, the great North was virtuous and held the colored race in high esteem. Black soldier meant black citizen. The bayonet meant ballot. But matters have changed. The war is ended, and it seems to me that there is a settled determination in high quarters to hand the country over to its former rulers and the black man back again to a condition little less degrading than his former one. I do not, however, think that this effort on the part of our enemies can long succeed. The Negro question is a live one and will not be buried alive. If so buried, it will defy the tomb. Never until justice is done the Negro can this country have peace. If we cannot get justice under Johnson, we will go before the country in 68. And if we fail then, nothing daunted, we shall fight on until victory is secured. I am looking for a stormy Congress. It seems plain to me that Johnson has sold us, but it remains to Congress to pass upon the bargain. I have still some hope in Congress. Strong men all over the North are demanding suffrage for the colored people of the South. Manhood suffrage is now the popular idea with the choice and master spirits of the North. Keep your little sheet in the breeze. Hold up this one grand idea without compromise or qualification, and we shall come out right in the end. The cause of our race is one, whether at the North 
or the self, and every upward movement at the self in our behalf is instantly felt here. You may depend upon me to do what I can in the right direction here. With best wishes, I am, dear sir, very truly yours, Frederick Douglass. Wow. Now, where did you find that letter? I found that in, um, actually, that that, um, was presented to me by um, members of the Louisiana Creole Research Association and their friends at a luncheon about five years ago. And and then, uh, subsequently, I I found it on microfilm uh, where most of the papers were preserved by the Library of Congress. And uh, uh, it can also be found uh, in digitized form uh, through Redex Newsbank. And I can talk more about those kinds of sources if people are interested. Well, yes, they are interested. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about, you know, part of the, your research at the Library of Congress and other sources. Well, absolutely. Now, we're fortunate in that the Library of Congress preserved about 1,200 issues of the New Orleans Tribune. Uh, and those were put on microfilm. The original newspapers were destroyed, but we have the microfilm records. And as you know, uh, reading uh, microfilm uh, is very difficult on the eyes, and we're talking about thousands of pages worth of text uh, in English and in French, and some of the copies are, are, are not well reproduced. You'll see the curve of the page and so on and so forth. Um, we are... Uh, fortunate in that Redex Newsbank has digitized all of the microphone copies of the New Orleans Tribune, and those are available at major universities which subscribe to the service. Uh, and fortunately, they're available to individual genealogists via subscription to genealogybank.com. There may be other sources, too, that I'm not aware of, but I have been able to read every single issue of the New Orleans Tribune that was preserved on my computer at home, uh, which is uh, far preferable to sitting uh, on the third floor of the New Orleans Public Library, which is one of the best places in the world. I love being there, staring at a a microfilm reader for eight hours a day. So I I would point that out, that most of America's historical newspapers have been digitized now, not all of them, um, and they're available uh, via subscription. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat. Are any stories, or have you found any of these stories personally interesting concerning your family narrative, and I would say as it relates to the newspaper or as it just relates to your family? Well, I wish I could say yes, but the the short answer is no, and there's a reason for that. The newspaper did not use bylines. So whenever there was an article that was written or an editorial that was written, we don't know who wrote it. Some historians have been able to figure out 
certain editorials uh, were from Paul Trevine, the first editor of the paper, and some of the editorials were written by Jean Ouzeau, the second editor of the newspaper, but there's simply no bylines. I know my great-great-grandfather's fingerprints are all over this newspaper. I know that you wrote for the newspaper. I know that uh, many of the editorials were written by him, but I can't tell which ones were and which ones were written by some of the other people on staff. So um, the important thing is it, it's a body of history that um, is from uh, the Tribune group. Uh, it's not so much about my family anymore. It's about this group of men who, who had just incredible courage to publish a newspaper that directly challenged white supremacy in the heart of the Confederate beast in New Orleans. They grew up in a slave society. They knew what that looked like. And they stood up, first chance they could, and said, we're not going to have anything to do with it. So I wish I knew. I wish I could see um, an obituary even that was linked to my family or an article written by one of my, descent, one of my ancestors, but I can't tell. Okay, and also, did the Tribune have a society section that provided uh, some information or details about the uh, local community? They had uh, items of public interest uh, that were published. It wouldn't really be what I would think of as a society section. And their different uh, columns and sections in the newspaper changed quite a bit over the years. But I will say this. Many of the uh, Republican ward clubs, many of the... Um, Many of the society, mutual aid societies that thrived in the free community of color uh, had their information advertised and published in the newspaper. For example, when uh, the free people of color of New Orleans were organizing first time for the black vote, they met at... Um, they met at... Um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm spacing on the name. They met at a uh, econ excuse me at the Economy uh, Mutual Aid Association on Ursuline Street, and uh, they crafted that petition that was delivered to Lincoln. Now, the Tribune not only organized that and reported on that and advertised that, but then they 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 took all of the things that came from that and kept covering it. So, was it a society section? No, we can say that there are advertisements that point to aspects of what was happen happening culturally and in society. For example, there will be uh, advertisements for grand and fancy masked balls. This is during the Mardi Gras season at various um, institutions in the city. Um, and there will be advertisements for all kinds of uh, musical events in the city that uh, would allow uh, people of color to attend. So um, in, in, in that sense, yeah, they were reporting not just on the politics, but also the culture uh, of what was going on in the city. Also, you, you mentioned earlier that the newspaper was in French and then 
which may have had different information than the English version. What did you see different between the French version and the English version of the newspaper? The the French version was notably different in two main respects. One is that their coverage of international news, what was happening in Europe in particular, was 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 very robust, and, and that basically didn't show up often in the English language section. The other thing that the French language section section did that didn't appear in the English language section was to um, publish what they called Le Fouilleton, which was a, a serialized novel, so that readers in French could follow a chapter per issue in basically what would be a, a romance novel. So um, those were two of the primary differences that I can note. I can also say that most of the uh, obituaries that appeared in the Tribune were in the French section, and we have to remember that uh, the readers uh, of the Tribune section were comprised of the formerly so-called free people of color who, you know, at, at the time of the, at, after Union occupation, just became black in New Orleans. Okay. Now, do you have any more um, abstracts you would like to share with us? I've got several. I think um, it, it's hard to know where to start, but I think that one thing that um, I'd like to read has to do with um, a phrase called Too Soon Men. And this is from the April 26, 1867 New Orleans Tribune. It's a very short extract. We can but laugh when men tell us it is too soon. The too soon men oppose the abolition of slavery, the arming of the colored men, the granting of civil rights, the universality of suffrage. We need no too soon men. We need men of action, boldness, and sincerity. And when I read that, Bernice, all I can think of is letter from a Birmingham jail. Yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm just going to very quickly just quote from Martin Luther King. When you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over. Ninety-six years after the Tribune wrote, too soon, man. Too soon, man. Too soon, man. Here's another one. And, I, I mean, there's comments soon. coming out. Yes, the okay. similarities of then. From then to now, there are similarities, definitely. Here's another one. And this is from the New Orleans Tribune, February 10, 1867. You've got to remember, this is like 151 years before, you know, Philando and Tamir, 
Jamar, let's say their name, Sandra, Freddie, Eric, Michael, Trayvon. Here's what they're saying. The colored people are arrested for trivial offenses for which the whites are permitted to go unmolested. And after arrest, they are punished very severely for offenses for which the privileged class are generally excluded for the first time. A white man may travel over the whole city at night with a bundle under his arm, while a colored is suspected of having stolen the articles which he carries with him and is arrested as being suspicious. The judge or jury who tries him is determined beforehand to declare him guilty. No chance is given. No time to prove his innocence is allowed him that would be given to a white man. He finds no sympathy. The very color of his skin is taken as a sign implicating guilt. Wow. That's giving me chills. I mean, I want to cry. I mean, it's, oh, my goodness. That could have been I tear up when today. I read these. I tear up. I tear up when I read this paper. It is so amazingly powerful. It is. We have a comment in the chat. Please hurry up and get your book published and then take my money. <laughs> <laughs> James Morgan. <laughs> Now, okay, Morgan, so I tell should, us when will we see your book? Okay, there, there's a there's something I have to say first, which is that the introduction to the New Orleans Tribune, America's first black daily newspaper, uh, is available for free online. And my website, which is www.rudanez, that's r o u d a n e z dot com has all of my research. It has dozens of these extracts that you can read for yourself. It has the complete text of my introduction, my little monograph that I wrote in conjunction with the 150th anniversary of the newspaper. It is chock-a-block full of very interesting short video pieces that uh, we've put together. It's a very robust uh, website that includes scholarship, uh, academic work on the New Orleans Tribune. It includes papers that I've written on specific aspects of the New Orleans Tribune, uh, which I think people will find very, very enlightening. So my big book I hope to have out in 2018, uh, but you don't have to wait to get a real good taste of what's to come. My upcoming book is is tentatively uh, entitled The Color of Freedom, The Story of America's First Black Daily Newspaper, The New Orleans Tribune. And what it's going to do is just offer this very crucial lens with which we can understand this early struggle for civil rights from the perspective of those who fought for them. I'm not talking about footnotes or sidebars. I'm, I'm, I'm using the editorials and the articles as a starting point to examine the history of all the battles 
of the 1860s. The, the battle for the black vote is a chapter. The battle for uh, integrated public schools, another on integrated public transportation, um, equal treatment in the courts of law, their struggle for control of the state government, their plans for redistribution of plantation lands to the emancipated slave. Um, all their, uh, I think one chapter also, which is just dealing with their unity uh, between the formerly free people of color and the, uh, the emancipated enslaved population. Uh, so look forward to that in 2018. Uh, right now I have a very unwieldy 600-page draft. I'm in the process of editing and condensing it. So I'm, that's what I'm shooting for. Well, we're certainly looking forward to reading your book. And there's a comment coming out of the chat from uh, Michael Henderson saying, excellent resource and a must-have for any historian and genealogist. Thank and you, so, Mr. Henderson. And so with that said, Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And for all of the listeners, please remember your ancestors' left footprints. I think Mark has probably found that out just through what he has discovered through the Tribune. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages, and also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mark. Thank you so very much. Good night, Bernice. Thank you.